Good evening, and welcome to Dante's Old South. My name is Clifford Brooks, and in this episode, we'll be talking to the winners of the Southern Collective Experiences LBGTQ Poetry Chatbook Contest. Along with their brave, brilliant voices, we have vibrant music to match. I'd like to now thank WTC and NPR, Lyndon Rowe Inn, Mostly Mutts, Autism Speaks, and the Red Phone Booth for all their love and support, and I urge you to give them the same. Now, let's hear Actor by Angel Snow.
I want to thank y'all for showing up for Dante's Old South this evening. And first up on deck, we have our third place winner in our LBGTQ contest for the Southern Collective Experience and the Blue Mountain Review, Mr. Ian Spencer Bell. Ian, how you doing, boss? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you here. And first off, tell us about you. What made Ian become the special individual you are today? Well, I am a dancer, a choreographer, a teacher, and a writer. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, and for the past 20 years, I've lived in New York City. All right. Um, the book you wrote has a poignancy and a movement to it that's rare in poetry. How did, what, what are the themes in your book? And uh, tell us how you named it, what you did. Um, well, the, the book is called Marrow, and it's a chat book. I think it's been anywhere between uh, 20 and 25 pages, and it started as 10 poems. Mm -hmm. um, Marrow is about growing up queer in the 1980s Virginia. Um, and by queer, I mean I was a gay boy ballet dancer, and I didn't pass. And um, I wrote the poems because I felt that I needed and wanted to record the language, the stories, the sounds, the places, and the people of that very particular time. And I wrote the poems because I had started talking to myself while I was dancing, and that's how the poems came. And I, I think that ultimately I was just sort of practicing saying, this is who I am, and this is where I'm from. Right, but the, the words, the, 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 there's a rarity in, in the way you capture your experience. And, and, and you don't waste time on dramatics or movement. It's concise. Tell me how you write poetry. Well, and I should, and you asked about the title. Um, the title, uh, Marrow, I, it all feels very close to the bone. It is, it's so much about my home and it's about my family. And it's about my body um, as a, I, the way I write generally is um, often in the morning. And um, if I'm not writing first thing in the morning, then I'm usually writing um, in little bits while I'm either walking or while I'm dancing. So as I said, like it, Mara started as, um, it started as one very long poem, Holler, where I, tried to name all of the, the objects in the first home that I remember living in. And as I, and then I, I organized them to a very, very long, long list. And I come from a family um, of people who like to list things. My mother in particular can, I'm sure if we got her on the phone right now, she could tell us every single thing in the pantry and in <laughs> um, and in the refrigerator and on her shelves, and so that is a part of my process as as a poet. I, I love lists. I love how they become like spells, right? Um, and so I think that when I realized that I was talking and dancing at the same time, and then I was starting to write down lines here and there. Um, I realized that I was really making music for my dancing. So Marrow started as 10 poems that then I performed first, um, first 
I, I did a small sequence. I did holler at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago. Right. And then I did a um, a little study of some of the poems out in East Hampton. And then I showed the the piece more or less as it is now, the solo version at the community, the LGBT community center here in Manhattan. Um, and then the chat book, I've just continued to add poems and take away poems and um, my stepfather was dying during, well, he's, it, it took him a very, very long time to die. Right. Um, and so those many, many years I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about the absence that he would make. Um, and I think now about that white space that I love about poetry that has something right. dancing. I think the reason I love poetry is because you can break lines in the way that you can break lines in dancing and that kind of what it does to time. I'm really yes. interested in. Exactly. Yes. Dude. Ian, what makes you happy? Um, what makes it, well, dancing and um, reading and walking, I think are the things that have saved my life. Right. And um, I think the thing that makes me really happy is a lot of sleep. <laughs> sleep, <laughs> sleep is really important and something I've been um, trying to work on, especially now during the pandemic. Right on, man. So, so moving forward, um, what new projects, shows, poetry, dancing do you have on deck for? Um, well, right now I am, I've been revising and writing a poem that I will include in a performance of a new piece, um, a relatively new piece. It's still a work in progress at Edith Wharton's house, which is called The Mount. Mm -hmm. And it's in Lenox, Massachusetts. And I started working on it uh, last, I started working on this project actually about a year ago. And then in August, I was in the Berkshires and there was um, the outdoor space at the Mount became available to me for performance. So I uh, created a short duet, which I, sh I performed in the forecourt. And as I've continued to develop the piece, uh, I've decided to add a poem. And I, had, I really hesitated. I wasn't thinking about adding a poem. I was feeling like it was a time for, for quiet um, and a time for to be thinking about breath um, but about a month ago, um, a friend of mine died and that, well, that got me writing again in a very, um, I always write, but I was about to say in a very serious way. And I guess I always write seriously, but, um, or with serious intentions, but I do think that poetry is a, is a, a great place for remembrance, right? Remembering who is with us now, who's not with us now, who's kind of always with us. So I'm, I'm glad to be thinking about that poem and working on that at present and how I'll get it into this dance. Well, before we have you read one of your poetry um, poems, I mm -hmm. wanna ask you a question. Uh, how does your poetry work into your choreography and how did it match with your dancing? How'd you make that happen? Well, I, I, as I say, you know, I, I started as a ballet dancer um, and then I became, I started working in modern and postmodern and contemporary dance. And I felt 
um, really troubled by music. I love music. And I think that actually it was probably music that brought me to poetry. I was just saying this to our, I teach at a, at a school and I was speaking to the librarian on Friday and there was a book, um, there was a Joni Mitchell book out and I was um, yeah. looking at her picture and I was thinking, you know, Joni's one of those poets that, um, that got me to actually write down lyrics. Um, so I think I, I came to it that way. And then, like I said, I feel like I started creating poetry as a kind of music for dancing. And I was really interested in the way that when I speak while I'm dancing, how it sort of complicates and um, stifles and then also liberates um, gesture and form. And, um, and I think that as I was thinking about myself as a performer, I felt very strongly that I wanted to have my whole person on stage, including my voice. And dancers are so regularly told not to talk. Right. I felt it was really important that as I practice being myself on stage, I practice being who I am, which is a dancer and, as you can tell now, a talker. And uh, the poem I thought I would read is... Do um, it, do it, because this dancer is going to read. You were going to talk here. I'm sorry, dude. You were <laughs> stuck. Do it. What you got for us? And it, the poem that I wanted to read is called Whole. And I, I was thinking about... I, this poem, I, I like the first line very much. Um, and I like the way it feels when I say it. And right. I, I like... The, the thing that I like about poetry too is that it can kind of create a whole, right? It kind of creates a whole in time. Um, so this poem is called Whole. Feeding the horses one August morning, my mother fell into a hole. Help, she said, as I sprawled in bed, heeding her and my cockrow dream. And the waver of the screen, black and green, wasted bodies, wingless and stuck, help. She said as I lay in bed still, sweating in this child's room, home, only a spell. And to be, I thought as I awoke there for this very yell, I went to the field and saw her, torn nightgown, shattered heel, head at the gate. I called for rescue, hook and ladder sent chief, he lives she said, at the end of the road. I followed the wailing to town. She never did walk the same. And those holes, my stepfather never filled. Ian Spencer Bell. Dude, man, that we have to have you back soon. We have to have you back soon. Thank you. It's, it's so nice to hear, hear I'm, here I'm talking about sound and language and it's so nice to hear your accent. <laughs> no, don't don't hold that against me now. I'm, I'm only here in person. You, you, um, you have a great voice for radio and a great voice for reading. It's nice to be with it. I, I can say the same thing about you. I mean, it, you don't you don't experience the truth of somebody until you hear it in their voice. And um, to, to read your book and to hear it, hear marrow or a piece of marrow out here, um, it's an honor. And uh, Ian Spencer Bell, I'm going to have you back. I'm going to have you back Thank on the you show. Guys, I love yes, that. Thank and before we bring on our second guest, we want to hear Closer Love by D.L. Yancey the second. That was amazing. She said, my darling, 
printed on our brains It's irreplaceable, yet unregainable The thought of us remains, yet it's unattainable So don't call me no more, don't write me no more I gotta move on, to see what love has in store Just a thought in her mind She wants love To be closer Just another song on the radio He's nothing like you He's all serious, yo So I have my moments And there's those times When I wish you were here But it plays with my mind So don't call me no more Don't write me no more I gotta move on To see what love has in store She wants Just a thought in her mind She wants love, she wants love To be closer Than just words on a page She wants love, she wants love To be closer To her physical body She wants love, she wants love. To be Just another song on the radio She wants love To be closer To be closer To be closer To be closer She wants love To be closer To be closer To be closer To be closer She wants love And next up on this rendition of Dante's Old South is our second place winner, Andrea Deacon. Andrea, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Clifford? I am wonderful. I cannot complain. And if I could, I won't. So we'll be back on you. Tell us about yourself, what you're about. Who are you? Sure. So my name's Andrea Deacon. I live in Portland, Oregon with my wife and our daughter, who is seven, almost eight. Um, I'm a writer. I also work at the public library here in town. I've lived in Portland for about 20 years, and but I didn't grow up here, actually. I grew up in Missouri. 
kind of out in the, the wilderness, for lack of a better word, right on, on a riverbank. That was my, my, my young life. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Now, how has, has what you just explained in your life in general, mm -hmm. your walk here on earth, how have these things played into the themes you address in your chat book submission? Tell us about that. Oh, that's a great question. So I, this was my first chat book. And so in some ways it almost felt like a really small biography. Um, it, it touched on some childhood things like, you know, I'm a child of divorce and also my father remarried when I was 14. Um, and I was an only child until that point, but then I immediately got six brothers and sisters. So there's like that <laughs> sort of reckoning of like, what is family? How do we make family? You know, mm -hmm. I've had many iterations of family in my life. Um, and then the other themes would be, I would say kind of adolescence and then coming to terms with my own sexuality, which, um, I didn't actually realize until, you know, I went away to college. And part of that was because I grew up very Catholic and, right it didn't seem to be a possibility to be gay or to be queer. And so there was, there's that friction there between very Catholic upbringing and family and then my own, own coming out process. And then the last part is um, becoming a mother and kind of making my own intentional family, which honestly, you know, um, feels like a radical act just that I exist in this unit of three. You know, I had to make it myself without any sort of map. Right. So those are kind of the, the main themes of the chat book. And what did you call the chat book again? I call it Mother King. Mother King. Mm -hmm. um, what I love about your poetry is that it's, it, it doesn't uh, insist upon itself and it's honest without oh. melodrama. Um, how, when in, in there are typically two camps, of course, for everything, but like there are people that believe kind of like, if you're going to lie, lie big. And, and then if you're going to write poetry, write the truth. When you sat down to write such, um, such, beautiful truth. I mean, how, how was it jarring for you to get it out on the page? Was it difficult? No, you know, what's interesting is I kind of came to poetry later in my life as a writer, but I've always kept a journal, you know, mm -hmm. I, um, for a long time, I, I was trying to be a fiction writer when I was younger, but I, I would get tripped up on plot. And I, my favorite thing was to just write scenes that were very detailed, mm -hmm. but I've always kept a journal, you know, and since I was about 17 and, um, you know, it wasn't until finding the poets, Marie Howe, her book, What the Living Do. Oh, yeah, that book yeah, broke yeah. me open. Yeah, and then Sh yeah, yeah. Sharon Olds. Mm -hmm. um, I, I realized I could just, I was always write, already writing this stuff and I didn't even realize, you know? So it's for me, it's, it's like a process of um, when I, when a poem comes to me, it's mostly I'm journaling, but then I, I make the choice to go back to edit. And that the editing process is something I'm still learning. And I have right. some great poets in my life who help me with that because I, that's something I am, you know, still learning how to do. And it's, it's the, the editing process is its own art form. It almost feels separate, you know, it, it's, it's, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's getting that honesty out and looking, looking at it hard. And, uh, you know, the, now that you you're grappling with the editing process and how you do it, how you hone your speech, um, what other good writing habits do you employ to stay on the ball? Oh, I love that question. So when I was younger, I thought I had to have a certain writing practice and I was like, so interested in other folks like how they did it but as i've i mean i just turned 40 last year that was kind of like a come to jesus moment for me like in a pandemic like what am i doing with my life you know <laughs> um, but i've kind of learned just to sort of take it as it comes you know i actually just heard this great talk with um the writer ross gay in conversation with lydia yuknovich and they talked about this very thing about like finding the rhythm of writing and how that it changes throughout your life depending on what stage of life you're in 
So at this point, I just sort of, you know, if it comes to me, I, I feel like I have to write it down real fast because who knows how much time I have, right? And then also the feeling of like, it could go away. I have to, it almost feels like it's not even coming from me for lack of a better word, you know? I do, I do. Um, what new material are you working on? Like what new art projects do you have on deck? Oh, thank you. Um, so my, I would love to make the chat book a longer book of poems. So like a full length collection, full length collection, kind of grappling with the same themes that we talked about. Um, mm -hmm. I also like to draw. So I, in my, the back of my mind, I have this like idea of a graphic memoir in my mind of just my childhood because my childhood was just so vivid and visceral and in the woods and the muck and there was just so much there. Um, and I, I kept kind of a, a very loose diary comic off and on for like the past 10 years. So that's kind of an, an idea. That's cool. And then I, and I also have, I'm, I'm a recent hobbyist to learning how to play piano. Nice. Yeah, and, and that has brought me so much joy. I feel like there's nothing better than having a hobby as an adult with like, that's just for yourself. It's my first instrument. Yeah, I love it. My friend of mine is teaching me over, over Skype and it's, cool. it's wonderful. It's actually, I'm having a lesson later today. It's every Saturday. So that's nice. been lovely. I want to like get very proficient at the piano if I can, you know? That would be cool. That would be yeah. cool. And, and hearing people get excited again never gets old now. On the other side of the pandemic, it's like somebody's smiling. I like that. I can hear that. <laughs> You know? well, music's so healing. Music has just really brought me so much healing and joy during this weird time, you know? Now, I have a question that I've stolen from NPR proper. And yeah. uh, if what is a question that you've never been asked that you always want to answer, but no one's asked you? What's that question? <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure if anyone's, no one's ever asked me this, but I just love that question about, um, other artistic influences. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I would be remiss if I did not mention, um, my love of the music of Brandi Carlisle. I feel like she has brought me to this place in my own life as an artist where I just, her presence, her, her ability to be her authentic self, to be her authentic gay self, talk about her family, her wife and her kids. And just to bring this joy to the stage, I, I like, I feel like the the best part about art is if, if as an artist, I want to get inspired to make my own art. And that's how I felt when I first heard her song, The Mother. Do you know that song? I do. Yeah, I do. that line, um, welcome to the end of being alone inside my mind uh -huh. or inside your mind. Oh my gosh, that song broke me open. I was standing in my kitchen and I was like, who is this? <laughs> and I'm like the biggest, her biggest fan, you know, I've seen her like four times in two years. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. So I, I think that's, even though I don't like really identify as a musician, I'm, I identify as a writer. I just, I just love other art forms and how they can inspire me, you know? Oh, right. Yeah, I do. And I think that songwriting and music and poetry are as, as close in relation as they could possibly get. You know, I can't totally. really differentiate one from the other. But, but talk about your music in specific and your songwriting and poetry specifically. Um, do you have a poem? Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, I have a poem, it's called First Kill, and it goes like this. Inside the deer stand, it was surprisingly small. The white bucket in the corner, wet sawdust and piss. The thrill of being alone with him, this new brother I had gotten just weeks before by way of a second marriage, four days apart, the two of us, babies born the same year. My father had taken us hunting. Anything could happen. I don't know who saw it first, but soon it was in our hands as we stood side by side, holding the magazine, curling at the edges, 
all those women and our eyes on them like magnets. There had been soft rumblings in my body before, and it would be years until I understood what they were trying to tell me. But here in the deer stand, the crickets loud in my ears, the humid air sticking to my skin, my new brother inches from my molting body, its pimpled cheeks and long coltish legs. For the first time in my life, I felt newly born. When my father returned with a doe, calling and calling our names, we scampered down the steps like guilty children, and I knew we would eat like kings that night. That's good. That is so Thank good. you. I enjoy your work a great deal. Thank you so much, Clifford. I appreciate it. All right. Well, y'all, this has been Andrea Deacon, and she took second place in our LBGTQ chat book contest with the Southern Collective Experience of the Blue Mountain Review. Andrea, you were fantastic, and we have to have you back soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the work you're doing with Blue Mountain Review. It's wonderful. Thank you. And before we bring on our last guest, let's hear Love on the Streets by Calliope. And put a smile back on your face Take you for a walk I'll show you what I got Something just right For your taste Find love, love on the streets You find love You know what I mean You find love, love on the streets You find love, good, good love
Last, but definitely not least, we have our first place winner of the Southern Collective Experience and Blue Mountain Reviews LBGTQ chapbook contest, Mr. Steve Bellinoka. How are you doing, boss? Great. Thank you for having me, Cliff. Um, your book, uh, it is a, it's a force, man, uh, and it, it comes with, uh, with a, light, um, a light style to it. Uh, explain to us, tell me about the book, what it's called, and, and this, this unique voice that you use throughout it. Well, it, the book is called Tell Me Exactly What You Saw and What You Think It Means, which is a line that Grace Kelly's character speaks in Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. Mm -hmm. So the book, as the title implies, I hope, is kind of an, a meditation on the connections between film and poetry as ways of looking at the world and looking at one's place in it. Mm -hmm. I've been a cinephile all my life, and I've taught film at the university level in the past, but most, some of my earliest memories are of watching films and kind of being wrapped up in the magical world that was being created for me. So as a sort of as a mature writer now, I think one can think of images and poems in um, visual terms, the way they might be displayed on a movie screen. And one can think of imagistic leaps as a kind of kind of jump cut. So if poems have this associative logic that runs throughout them, and I appreciate you calling attention to the subtlety of that because I never want to hit anybody over the head with these associative leaps and the associative logic that I have in a, in a poem. Uh -huh. But I think those connections between poetry and film are natural. So I've got four ekphrastic poems about specific films in the book. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the poems, I think, also move through these kind of associative imag imagistic leaps that you would have in transitions between scenes or in different types of cuts in uh, in films. Right. And it, it, it insists us to take a step back and look more at the poet. And Steve, tell us some more about you specifically, where you came from, what makes you you? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I'm originally from Baltimore and... Uh, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma now, mm -hmm. but I've lived all over the North American continent, mainly because uh, I'm married now and for just the last five years legally, but I've been partnered with a Japanese citizen for the last 24 years now. Right on. So same-sex marriages only were legalized by uh, the Supreme Court in this country in late 2015. Mm -hmm. So before that, we had to live for two and three year periods in different parts of the country, wherever we could get a temporary visa to keep him in the country legally. Mm -hmm. But eventually, you know, you run out of those options because we've been together a long time now, almost a quarter century. So uh, we went to live in Canada for a decade um, from 2007 almost a decade, from 2006, I should say, to 2015. And that was because the laws there recognized same-sex marriages much earlier than they did here in my home country. So Kenichi is his name. So Kenichi and I have lived this kind of itinerant existence for most of our lives together. We first met in San Francisco when we were both living there. We moved from there to Mississippi, then to Wisconsin, then to Arizona, then to Vancouver, then to Prince Edward Island. Most recently before Tulsa in rural New Mexico, and now we're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So that's probably the most, I don't know, distinctive thing about me is that I really have not had much of a home for my adult life. 
And right. it's affected a lot of my career and a lot of my writing, my family relationships, my friendships. So I write a lot about the experience of going into kind of exile or being an itinerant kind of wanderer. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a lot of what my work is about. And some of the some of the poems in Tell Me Exactly What You Saw and What You Think It Means are about uh, returning to the United States from that time in Canada. Uh, other things about me, I, I translate contemporary Mexican poetry from Spanish. I'm currently a Tulsa Artist Fellow in poetry for the last couple of years. Yeah. I'm a big music nerd, particularly post-punk and new wave um, and some of the second wave of that stuff. And I, I love animals too, cats and dogs. Like we've got a ton of them. You're officially one of the coolest people I know, man. You're like, you. I'm serious. I'm like, check the box, check the box, check the box. We've got to hang out, dude. Um, um, it's, it's a poem I, I like, or a question I like to ask is, um, when you think about becoming, you said you became a poet late in life. Was there one moment that really struck you that you went, I'm going to do this? Yeah. Um, so I was just talking about being a kind of a music obsessive and I, I never wanted to be anything but a musician or a, uh, composer, of classical music when I was younger. Uh-huh. I thought that was the coolest kind of thing. Um, but I didn't have the means to study that and I didn't have the discipline really to get really good at uh, the instruments that I could play. So I think I started writing poetry in college when I stopped studying music and started studying, because of the, obviously there's connections between poetry and music as well in terms of rhythm and syncopation and uh, the rhythmic phrase. So, um, but I never really took that all that seriously until uh, I did go to grad school. I did go to get my MFA pretty much right out of college. And you know, by the time I finished that, I was something like 24 years old, which is not enough of life to have any experience to write decent poetry. So, Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> so um, I don't think I really got serious about writing poetry and seeing possibilities for publication for it until uh, sometime in the last 10 years or so. That's cool, man. Yeah. That's cool. And a, a cool crossover. I was just talking to Andrea uh, Deacon, who took second yeah. place just a second ago. And we just talked about how music and poetry, it, they, there's, there's an inner interconnectivity there. There's yeah. A, you know, yeah. To, so to hear you talk about it in the same way and the way it's heard and the way it's, it's performed, right. there's, there's, a, there's a musicality um, to that as well. So let me right. ask you this. Um, when you write poetry, do you typically have music uh, or no? Oh yeah, I always I, I'm always listening to music when I'm writing. Yeah, and that could be it. It needs to not have words, so not to get distracted. So I'm usually listening to either classical music um, or jazz. So I'm a big jazz fan as well. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. don't talk forever, dude. Um, right. Okay, so you have music. All right, I'm gonna keep this. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stay linear here. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about you. You have classical jazz going as you write. Um, right. What other writing practices, whatever habits or superstitions do you have when you get down to do the dirty work? Yeah, um, I think because I stopped I stopped writing for so long in my life. It might have been about 15 years mm-hmm. that. Um, it helps me now to impose some pretty difficult demands on myself in terms of productivity in, in spurts. 
So I seem to work best when I'm juggling multiple different projects, but I belong to three writing groups right now that require me to write a poem every single week. And so that, because those group meetings are kind of staggered, I'm writing a new poem every week to meet the demands of those groups. Um, But a couple of times a year, I also participate in projects that require you to write a new poem every day. And I'm doing one of those for National Poetry Month right now with about a dozen other poets. So that's cool. Yeah, all of that activity kind of helps me keep focused on this kind of questioning, doubtful state of mind that I think is a necessary precondition of writing a decent poem. Yes. Um, Yeah, I I think I'm probably misquoting E.M. Forrester here, but I think he's the one who said, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Mm -hmm. So most of uh, the poems in the chapbook were drafted during one of those months when I was writing a new poem every day. And that was in December of 2018, when we were packing up to move from rural New Mexico to Tulsa for this fellowship. So the the interesting thing is that writing that much material so quickly, it requires a really intensive and probably long revision process afterwards, because what comes out is is pretty rough. Mm -hmm. So uh, like I said, I think I wrote a good two thirds of those poems in late 2018, but I just thought they were now revised to finish states two and a half, almost three years later. I agree. I like yeah. that, man. I like that. Now, before I have you read one of your poems, I have one more question for you. Sure. That's, uh, yeah. What's your favorite kind of poem to write and why? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question. I think um, <clears throat> for me, I've grown really interested in uh, collage types of poems and found poetry lately. Um, particularly centos, which is a form that dates back to the ancient Rome, where you're taking uh, found lines of poetry from a variety of other poets and breaking them differently, arranging them into stanzas, juxtaposing the words of other writers in an entirely new way. And the creative process is the kind of collaging of that. And for me, it's a form that allows me access to my subconscious better because I can turn off my internal editor that's always judging what I'm writing because the words are already there. I just need to uh, move them around and re um, place them next to each other in ways that open up new meanings. So I think, and it's it's kind of fun. It's a kind of fun form as well. So what I tend to do is I take randomly maybe every 10th book down off my shelf and say to myself, oh, I'm gonna open to page 56 and use the fourth line of the poem that's on that page or something like that. So it tends to produce these types of poems that are almost hypnagogic or in dream states that is the mental space that that lyric poem resides in. And um, I once remember uh, the contemporary poet Brenda Hillman saying you should always revise towards strangeness, which I yes. think is a yes. wonderful uh, way to think about revising a poem. So in that strangeness is already built in to the creation of the cento and um, <clears throat> is, I think, uh, a way for me to get at things in the subconscious that I that my normal patterns of thinking when I'm writing a poem don't get to sometimes. 
And Linda will hit us with one of these poems. Tell us the title, give us a little bit of background. Yeah, so this is um, a chanta that's in the book. It's the second book in the poem. Uh, it's called Monologue as Hypothermia Sets In. And one of the projects I'm currently working on is a collaboration with a visual artist about uh, Matthew Shepard and the location in Laramie, Wyoming, where his murder took place, which is kind of being erased completely. The fence that he was strung up to is gone. There are McMansions being built on the land. There's no marker, nothing like that. And so uh, my friend, the, the painter and I are trying to reclaim some of that space uh, for what we think it should represent and what it should mean. And uh, so the first two poems in the chapbook are actually collaborations where I am responding to a poetic, I'm sorry, a painting. Mm -hmm. And the second one is also a cento and was written using that process I was just talking about. Right, right. It's called Monologue as Hypothermia Sets In. Now that the nameless roads have carried me from town, I remember then lose eight hours. We are all earthworms, out of velvet, out of rayon, out of lace, out of ribbon. The figure or angel who disappears skippers from our flesh, our flesh of the same diseases, identical pain. There's war and famine, accord, cardinal sins. There's a ring, paper into pulp, our words last, then an awkward, unexpected jump. Black cloth flutters on a cattle fence. The vines wrist pulse, the green tendrils of my day old beard. No tack cloth or stable rag can wipe this away. For we are one and one and lost. What isn't? Singing, the angels are wrong. Chapter that ends in a language of smoke. Steve, man, that. It just lingers there, dude. It, it's, it's, it's good. It, it's, and I love it to me, man. Like what I dig most about these interviews is being able to hear people. Because to me, I don't feel like it steals something for me to hear how you read it. Like, I'm always fascinated with how the, the music yeah. actually runs in your head. And it just, it's just like, I, was, I kept nodding my head back. Like, you know, oh, wait, wait, stay focused, stay focused. You know, it just, it, it, you live. <laughs> right. you live, you yeah. live. So it, it's extremely good stuff, man. So, I mean, exactly. you know, t t tell us the title of the book again. It's called Tell Me Exactly What You Saw and What You Think It Means. And soon you'll be having copies of that and folks can go and buy them from you from the Southern Collective website, which we will have us link to in the comments with this show. Awesome. Um, because it, it, the, the work is fantastic. And thank you again, the, the, y'all. This is the winner of our LBGTQ chatbook contest, Steve Bill and Oka. And boss, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Yo, you're welcome. And thank you very much for talking to me. Oh, it's fantastic to have you here. Y'all yeah. don't go away. We now have a song called Morning by Call Me Spinster. Morning is a time You and I, you and I Again. Go to sleep, my love. 
Thank you so much for hanging out with me, Clifford Brooks, for this hour of Dante's Old South. A deep debt of gratitude goes to our guests, the musicians, WETC and NPR, Lyndon Row Inn, Mostly Mutts, Autism Speaks, and the Red Phone Booth. Please get online and see what you can do for and with them. Before I say goodbye to y'all, I have a poem from my first book, The Draw Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics. The poem is called Orchid Incident. Evidence of a wicked man is in this woman's bath. Her lover's been long kicked out. She can be seen through one window. Condensation obscures her. A leg crests, then stretches forward. A bottle of rum, one orchid on a silver tray. Shot glass thrown back three times. Beneath a bare bulb, she hums as Strauss conducts metamorphosis. Wound round her ankle is a green dragon tattoo. Y'all, be safe and love one another. And before y'all tune out, please listen to Why by Elaine Johannes and his band, Eleven. Good night. Just
just in the cold with just a mold please tell me why